Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. Uh, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. It's a little bit longer passage this morning as we're continuing through Mark's gospel. But uh, you'll see how it's all one unit together. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 and 29, you can follow along on the screen or in your booklet, uh, even better, in your Bible. Hear now the word of our covenant Lord. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. One of the things that's important to do, and I've mentioned this a little bit before, but this week's a great example of it, is when we're reading the Gospels, because we have four Gospels, and the three that are known as the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very often they tell the same story. And you learn a lot by the things they say that are exactly the same, and then where there are distinctions between the Gospels. And so sometimes we can really learn what Mark in particular is wanting to say by what he includes or stresses that Matthew or Luke do not. And we're gonna see that's the case today. But we also learn by comparing similar accounts within the gospel. Sometimes there are things that's like, oh, this is very similar to that, but then something different happens, and that's the way that the Spirit is wanting to reveal to us, pay attention to this aspect. We saw that, if you remember, there's two feedings of the multitude in Mark's gospel, but Mark is teaching two different points. It's not the same point twice. He's teaching us two different things about who Jesus is in those two feedings. Well, in this text today, this story is actually covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's one of the few stories that is covered by all three of the gospel writers. But even though Mark is by far the shortest of those three gospels, this account is far longer in Mark's gospel than either Matthew or especially Luke record. The entire conversation with the Father is not recorded in either Matthew or or in Luke. Um, 
Secondly, when you look at this uh, encounter, we can say, well, this is another encounter between Jesus and a demon. And we've seen very many of those from all the way at the beginning of the gospel. But this one is very different. In virtually every case, Mark will include, and at the end of Jesus doing this, the crowd exclaimed about how great Jesus' authority is. They ask who he is, and they praise and worship God. None of that is in this account. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Luke actually records that was the response of the crowd, but Mark skips right by that. And the reason for that is, though we have seen this many times, in this instance, what is really important that Mark wants to stress to us is how Jesus is training the disciples. He is working with his apprentices to teach them through their failure. So he's not going to pay attention to what the crowd is doing because he wants to get to that final question because that is really the point of the passage. The Holy Spirit, working through Mark, wanted to speak regarding what those disciples needed to learn and what you and I need to learn as disciples and apprentices of Jesus from this incident. So that's where we're going to really put our focus today because it's what the focus is in Mark's gospel. Now, what we see is another spiritual battle. Again, these have been there from right off when we read about Jesus' baptism and he goes into the wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil. We have seen spiritual battle after spiritual battle, and we're seeing another one here. And what we also are seeing is the battle includes Something going on with these scribes or the teachers of the law. When Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, where he is revealed in all of his glory to the three disciples, where the Father again speaks and says the Son is pleasing, and it's this glorious moment, Jesus returns down, and what he walks right into is another argument. The, the scribes, the teachers of the law are there, and they are arguing with the disciples. Notice in verses 14 to 16, he comes... Uh, they see that there's a large crowd and the teachers of the law are arguing with them. And that the people see Jesus and they run over, but Jesus immediately notes that this arguing is going on. And probably what is happening here that we've seen over and over again, the teachers of the law have come down because they don't like Jesus, they don't like what he's teaching, they don't like what he stands for, and, and they are, they've done this before where they approach the disciples when Jesus is not there to try and, and work their way in among the disciples. Um, and that's exactly what's going on here. And in fact, what they would be saying is Jesus should not be casting out demons. Who's authorized him to do this? Who's trained him to do this? He's not one of us. And certainly his disciples shouldn't be. And look what just happened. They tried to do something and it didn't work. And rather than showing their own ability to cast out the demon, of course, what they do is start arguing with the disciples. But what Jesus does is he walks up and he really, his question is probably addressed to the scribes. It's not to the disciples. It's what are you arguing with them about? In other words, if you've if you got, you got a question, come to the master, don't come to the apprentices. Come ask me about what's been going on rather than going to them. But Mark immediately kind of drops the scribes off. They don't really show up in the rest of the account because what happens is we learn immediately that the disciples have had a massive failure in a spiritual battle. And that's because a man in the crowd answers and says, teacher, I brought my son to, to your disciples. And he gives this pitiful description of a tormented boy. In verse 18, we're told that he is seized, he's thrown to the ground, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, he becomes rigid. Does that sound like any disease that anyone knows of? Epilepsy. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, we're told the boy has epilepsy. It's clearly identified he actually has epilepsy. But what's interesting is, Mark wouldn't deny that, but there's something beyond the epilepsy. There is a spiritual component because notice it specifically says he is possessed by a spirit. And this isn't, well, you know, they didn't understand back then because Jesus throughout the thing is mainly dealing with the spirit, the demonic spirit. And the Lord knows what epilepsy is. He understands. And of course, 
Actually, so did they because Matthew actually records that's what the boy had. But there is a spiritual component, demonic activity. And notice what's not part of epilepsy is the boy is mute. He can't speak as well. And this has been going on for quite some time. And so Jesus is going to deal with it predominantly as a case of demonization or what we sometimes call demonic possession, uh, not as a physical illness. Many times in the gospel, he heals physically and there's no relationship with demons. Here, there is demonic activity that is going on and he's going to deal with it. And so the father says, look, I brought him to your disciples. I asked them to drive the spirit out and they tried and they failed. And this is what is central in the story. This is why they and the scribes are arguing and it's going to drive the rest of the narrative. Why the disciples failed. And there's going to be a growth. Again, I'm using the phrase here apprenticeship because sometimes we take discipleship and we've made it into this hyper-religious thing and that's not what it is. We, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be apprenticed by Jesus. That's where you're beside the master who knows more and the master is training you and guiding you. And part of that is you fail. You simply fail. And that's, that is part of apprenticeship. And that's what's happening to the disciples today. They suddenly have failed. And what has happened and why? Now, interesting, before we get to that, we are told by Mark and we're reassured that Jesus then expels the demon. The failure is not because this demon can't be expelled because he comes to Jesus once again and notice that the demon displays malice towards the boy. We're told uh, there in verse 25 that uh, he rebukes the evil spirit and the spirit shrieks and it convulses him violently. It, it's, it seems to be trying to resist um, and, it's, and it's showing its malice towards the boy. At that very last second, it's doing as much damage as it can possibly do, which by the way, is just a reminder, this is the malice of Satan. Uh, as a guy who, who loves studying history and you know at the academy that was my degree and I specialized a lot in World War II and I never cease to be amazed that when you look at the Nazis and all of their malice and hatred they had towards Jews and others, once it was apparent, everybody except for Hitler who had lost his mind, everybody knew the war was over. Did that stop them from continuing to try and kill as many people as possible? They continued right up to the last moment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred within a month of the end of the war. They had him in jail for like two years, but they were doing it right away because that's the way Satan operates. This demon knows the battle is done. Jesus is there. He's going to lose. He's going to cause whatever destruction he can right to the last second. That's the enemy that we face. But notice Jesus commands the demon and it obeys. But interestingly, even as the demon comes out, it leaves the boy in what we might call a catatonic state. The boy is laying there and what does everybody around him think has happened? They think he died. They're like, ugh, Jesus did this thing and, and in trying to get the demon out, it actually killed the boy. The cure was worse than what was going on before. But it's very interesting. Notice Mark's terminology here. This is just a thing for us to learn to read carefully. When you're reading in verse 27, uh, it says, the boy looked so much like a corpse, verse 26, that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand. Have we read that before in the gospel? You remember the little girl who was dead and Jesus takes her by the hand and says, I say to you, child, arise. Mark uses the same phrase here. He takes this boy by the hand and then we're actually told he lifted him to his feet and he stood up. But these particular Greek words are very often used for resurrection. Okay, it's not that the boy was necessarily actually dead, but he looks dead to everyone. And Mark is saying, and it wouldn't even matter if the demon had killed him, Jesus can raise him from the dead. And Jesus does raise this boy up. And, and it's important, Jesus has healed and he's delivered because part of what's going on is Mark is saying, this boy is given new life. 
everything is changed for this boy. What was a hopeless, pitiful, tormented existence is now resolved forever. And notice Jesus has said, you know, you can no longer come back in. Now, we would expect here again, Mark to say, and the crowd said, this is amazing, who is this? But remember, Mark's already answered in the first half of the gospel, who is Jesus? He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one that was promised to come. That's already been answered. So no longer do the demons tell us that. No longer is that the question from the crowd. And we don't read, they all praised and worshiped God. We've seen that many times. And again, Luke tells us that they did actually worship and praise God. But Mark is wanting to get to the real issue. Jesus drove the demon out. The boy was restored. Why couldn't the disciples do that? That's the issue. And so here's this apprenticeship through failure. And the key question in the entire thing is in verse 28, where the disciples, you know, they go indoors. They're, they're back in private because Jesus doesn't do this in front of everyone else. They, they get off in private and the disciples come and say, why couldn't we drive it out? This is the lesson. Now, we might think, well, because he's God and you're not. But that's not the answer. That's not what's going on here. Because in fact, Jesus, we have been told in the gospel on multiple occasions, has given the disciples authority to drive out demons. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read, He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. So notice there's three parts to the apprenticeship, and we talked about this much earlier. Number one is being with Jesus. That's number one. That's the most important thing for an apprentice or a disciple. Number two is they are sent out to proclaim the word. They are sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And number three is they have authority over these demonic forces. And lest we think, well, he gave them that authority, but now's the first time they're trying and they're just failing. We've actually read in the gospel that many times they have succeeded at this same thing. In Mark chapter 6, we have a reference where Jesus sends them out. And in verse 7, we are told in, in Mark 6, calling the 12 to them, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. So Jesus again says, I remind you, I've commissioned you, I've given you this power. As you preach the gospel, you are going to run into spiritual warfare and conflict, and I've given you authority to deal with that. And when they come back in Mark 6, 13, we read, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So we see that the disciples have been given authority. They know they've been given authority. They've been repeatedly been given authority. And in fact, they didn't just drive out one or two demons. They've driven out many demons. So when this father comes with the young boy, put yourself in the place of those nine disciples. What do you expect is going to happen? We've done this before. I mean, we're going to do what we've done every time. We're going to command this demon, and he is going to obey just like they all have before. And they speak the words, and they do the thing, and what happens? Nothing. Picture what it would be like to be there. with. I, I am sure the, the stupefied look, they probably tried it multiple times. As in panic, they realize this demon is not responding. This is a more difficult case than they have run into before. And so the question is, why did they fail this time? It's not that they didn't have authority. It's not that they haven't done it before. What is going on here? And Mark gives us two answers. There's two things that lie behind their failure. Number one, it is a failure from a lack of faith. Remember I said Mark's gospel is longer than the other two. He includes this whole conversation with the Father, and we're going to see that that points this out. Now, the other gospels do record that Jesus speaks in verse 19, but notice how he characterizes. The second Jesus hears the disciples didn't drive it out, his first response is, O unbelieving generation, O generation of no faith, 
is what it literally is. You, you are a generation that does not have faith. And notice the, the exact, how long am I going to be with you? How long do I have to put up with this? You are an unbelieving generation. And again, this statement is in all three synoptic gospels. They all see it as being central to what they are trying to teach. Jesus is immediately identifying faith as a key issue. And then Part of what's happening is he's apprenticing the disciples. I can almost imagine as the conversation goes with the father, and again, Matthew and Luke don't record that conversation, but Mark is letting us eavesdrop in because I bet Jesus is probably looking at the disciples. Are you paying attention to the conversation that's going on right here in front of you? Because this is lesson one as to why there's failure. So notice what happens. The conversation with the father centers on faith. Jesus, you know, asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, it's often thrown him into the fire. It's not all this. And we can, re, we can run by this little statement where he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us. But that's not the right way. The right way to read it is, but if you can do anything, take pity on us. See, what's the implicit statement that the father's making? I mean, I've heard you can do things but I've heard your disciples did things. And I brought him here, and your disciples gave it their best shot, and they crashed and burned. And notice, it's not just me surmising that's the way it is, because what Jesus immediately leaps on is, if you can. So, so that's what's going on. There is, I've just said it's an unbelieving generation. D disciples, are you watching? This is what's happening here. There is a lack of faith. And so Jesus jumps in and says, if you can. He takes time to rebuke the lack of faith. Now that's not Jesus not being concerned. He's showing concern for the boy. He is going to deal with it. But he's wanting us to understand in terms, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, I won't put this on the screen, but, but we are told it is, is it hard to please God without faith? Or is it impossible? Faith is the air that we breathe. And where there is not faith, we actually read in the Gospels that when Jesus went back to Nazareth, remember, that he didn't do many miracles there because they had no faith. They did not believe. There, there, was, there was no interaction that was able to go on. And so Jesus immediately drives to this point. And again, the disciples are watching this. And notice, he speaks this to the Father and says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And I love the father's response. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, kind of, <laughs> but help my unbelief. Now, some people want to rebuke this, but notice Jesus doesn't rebuke it. The father says, I, I believe. Well, I am trying to believe. I am clinging to what I've got, but I'm asking you, I know I'm struggling with this. Would you please help my unbelief? Has anybody ever been in prayer and felt that before God? God, I mean, I am trying to believe here. I am trying to cling to what you say, but <laughs> help my unbelief, okay? And that's, it actually is this, this honest cry for Jesus to sustain and grow faith has resonated with believers down through the ages, and it's recognized by Jesus not as a spirit of doubt, but as a spirit of faith, okay? See, there are people, and we live in an age that what we refuse to doubt is our doubts. This guy's willing to doubt his doubts and saying, I'm trying to believe would you please help my unbelief? Lord, I don't want to be a doubter. I want to be a believer. We live in an age today that basically says, will you prove it to me first? And what will be written over that is exactly what was written over Nazareth. Not much is going to be done here. Okay? This guy is crying out, and it is an example of what faith looks like.
Now, interestingly, again, when you read the other accounts, and we don't normally do this, but in Matthew, Matthew records that Jesus did bring this home with the disciples because he didn't have the whole conversation with the Father. So he includes when the disciples come to Jesus and ask, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus said, because you have so little faith. So we don't need to question whether Jesus was saying this is true of the disciples as well as it's true of the Father, as well as it's true of the whole generation, because Matthew tells us, the full answer really kind of recorded both. Mark has given us the conversation of the Father that is the context so that we understand. Because again, I think we can kind of read that Jesus is probably kind of looking and almost saying, are you guys listening to the conversation here? This is the first problem. There, there, there's no faith in operation here. And so he, he deals with this. And this shows that the essence of the conversation between Jesus and the Father is about the need for faith, not just on the part of the Father, but also on the part of the disciples as they minister to others. Because whatever level of faith the Father had, you know, sometimes you get this today where there are people like, you know, I'll pray for you, and if you have enough faith, you'll get healed. The problem's with you, not with me. But see, Jesus doesn't do that. Whatever level of faith the Father had was sufficient because Jesus drives the demon out, but the disciples couldn't. So it's easy to cast the blame on the poor dad, but he wasn't really the problem. The problem was the disciples themselves were struggling with faith. And so we're, we're told this, and their failure to cast out this strong demon showed they were not operating out of faith, but rather out of their own knowledge and abilities. Because here's one of the problems. When you've been apprenticed to a certain point, you can easily start becoming self-sufficient. The demon comes, and what do you say? Ah, I got it. I got it. I can almost see the disciple stepping up front. Hey, I'm really good at this. Let me do it. And then you try it, and it doesn't work because you've never had the ability to do this. God can do it through you, but you better be looking to him. And we're gonna come back to this. We live in an age, the air we breathe is self-sufficiency. And that is the opposite of faith. And so the disciples have just learned a big lesson just because you've done it a hundred times before, you want to be self-sufficient? The Father can step back and see how you do it on your own. And the answer is, you fail. Second issue is a failure from a lack of prayer. Notice in Mark's gospel, because he's already shown us the faith aspect through the conversation, he specifically hones in on the part of Jesus' answer, you know, when they say, why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, this kind come out only by prayer. And so Jesus is here saying, look, your failure in spiritual battle was done before the battle started. Okay, it was once you engaged in the battle, you had not been there in prayer. Because notice, is there any record in any of the gospels of Jesus praying in that moment? None whatsoever. There's no account that Jesus you know, said, well, let me go over here and pray for 10 minutes and I'll come back. He just immediately deals with it because the prayer he's talking about is not prayer in the moment. It is a constant life of communion with the Father. And see, I've been walking in that communion, so I'm able to deal with this kind. You, however, were not walking in that kind of communion you waited until the moment of battle, and then you cry out, but the battle has already been enjoined. And so he's speaking about a failure to build a life of prayer, drawing near to God in regular prayer each day. And remember, we've been seeing, we're, you know, we're at the beginning of the second half of the gospel, and Mark keeps referring back to Mark chapter 1 in every way. Remember, we had Elijah John the Baptist is Elijah in Mark chapter 1. We go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Elijah is there. We have the declaration that, that Jesus is the Son and the Father is pleased with him in Mark chapter 1, and it's back here in Mark chapter 9. Well, once again, one of the first things we see about Jesus in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus drawing aside for prayer. You remember in verse 35, he, he's ministering in the town. 
And the disciples are excited because, man, we are packing them out. But Jesus, we're told in verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. But don't just stop there. So we have Jesus communing with the Father. What are the disciples doing? Notice verse 36 and 37. They're not only not engaging in prayer, they're interrupting him from engaging in prayer. And in fact, we see this throughout the Gospels. We're told Luke actually tells us that Jesus often did this. We've seen multiple times where Jesus has gone off. Remember, I've spoken about that word for wilderness or lonely place, eremos, where Jesus is constantly, this is his habit. He goes off and he does this. We never read of the disciples doing that. They are interrupting is what they are doing. And what's interesting is that, you know, because what, the, what, they're, what they're all about is they're do you see, Jesus, there's the excitement of the crowd. Do you see what's happening here? But Jesus is saying, but do you understand where the authority and power, even for me as the eternal Son of God comes from, is my communion with the Father? No communion with the Father, no ability to do what we're doing here. But the disciples don't get it. And in fact, this continues throughout the gospel. It's a pattern. Jesus prays and the disciples don't. Can anybody remember an incident on the last night of Jesus' earthly life? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's he doing? Praying. And does anybody remember when Jesus had told them at the table, the eternal Son of God says, Look, here's what's going to happen tonight. A test is coming, and you guys are going to fold like a house of cards. And Peter says, Oh Lord, thou knowest all things. Right? Oh no, Lord, you are once again misunderstanding your Jesus. These clowns might fail, not this guy. Right? And so then they go off in the garden, and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Peter's right there with them. And what does he tell them to do? Watch and pray. The test is coming. And so he goes off and he prays for an hour and he comes back and what are these stalwart warriors doing? Sleeping. He wakes them up. Uh, you know, Peter, <laughs> couldn't you watch? Just one hour. Goes away. Comes back, what are they doing again? They're asleep again. Goes away, comes back, and then in the moment of, of spiritual trial where there is spiritual battle going on, Peter is not prepared. He's not ready, so what does he end up pulling out? A sword. As if what's going to resolve spiritual battle is a physical sword. And Jesus has to tell him basically, stop that. Don't you think I could, I mean, if that was what we were doing, I can call a bunch of angels right now and they can like wipe out everybody. That's not how this works, Peter. But see, once again, you weren't prepared in communion with the Father prior to this. And so when the test came, you folded. And then despite what he said was gonna happen, when Jesus told him, put the sword away, what happens to all the disciples? They all flee. And in fact, the the sad picture of Peter, brave Peter, now that all of that has come and the crisis comes, you remember he gets in the courtyard and who is the big burly person that comes that Peter cowers before? A 12-year-old girl. Because he was not ready. Because throughout the gospel, Jesus prays, the disciples are not. They're failing in their apprenticeship. So, this is what the text is presenting to us as apprentices of Jesus. How do we learn through this? And number one, I'm not gonna really say much about it, but number one, I would tell you, don't be afraid of failure is one thing to learn here. This is the school that they're going through, and it includes failure. If you're going to attempt to serve God, you're going to fail. If you say, I'm trying to get deeper in the word, you're gonna have days where you don't. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged, learn. It's part of everything we've ever grown at. But what we're really gonna look at is growing in faith through a life of prayer. Because notice the two keys that led to failure in this passage were a lack of faith and prayer. And these two 
are intimately united. And that's what Mark, by the Holy Spirit, is wanting us to see. The reason they were lacking faith in the moment of the fight is because they had not communed with God in prayer prior to that. Faith is only sustained and grows in close communion with God. You cannot grow in faith and not be spending time with God. It doesn't work that way. And now, obviously, there's other ways that faith grows. We're told in you know, Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the word. It grows as we hear and study God's word, as we worship, as we fellowship with others. There are other ways. But one key way of communion with God is prayer. And that's what Mark is linking together here in this text. It's especially important as we consider spiritual warfare. So I want us to think for a moment as we're applying the word here and ask ourselves, each of us can probably think of a situation right now in my own life, in my web of relationships, where Satan's at work. It's work in my life. He's at at work in the life of someone we love. And the frustration is, Have we ever experienced where I realize that, but I'm like the disciples. I'm speaking and the demon's not listening, right? It seems like it's not working. I seem to be powerless in this situation. This can include personal spiritual attack in my life. It might be even that my marriage is struggling or I'm having troubles with my children or grandchildren. I remind you, the boy had epilepsy, but is that all that was going on? See, I may be struggling in my marriage or in a relationship, and there may be practical things, but that may not be all that there is because there was something else going on here, and no amount of drugs were going to, that could control the epilepsy can solve the problem if there's a demonic attack. And so it may be any of these. It may be friends who are going through major life struggles and doubt. And in these situations, so think about what they are, we are tempted to trust in our ability to fix the situation. But it's a fatal mistake. I remember when we had a a child that was having difficulties at one point, and my wife thought that the child might have um, some form of ADD or something, And in all of my wisdom, I said, no, what the child has is not ADD, it's S-I-N, and I'm the solution to that problem. I'll let you guess how well that worked. (laughs) Jesus came down from the mountain and was like, you blockhead. (laughs) This is not going to work. But see, how often are we tempted to do that? I'm going to resolve this spiritual warfare situation with my own abilities. But you cannot fight a spiritual battle with physical weapons. No amount of pulling the sword out in the garden is going to work. You cannot do that. And so even if there was modern medicine, again, to control that boy's epileptic seizures, apart from someone being able to engage in the spiritual battle, it's not ultimately going to work. There's no pill that can expel a demon, okay? Not against the pill. That's one. It can be both. But, but please hear, there is a spiritual component. And we, again, are tempted. I want us to think what characterizes our age is self-sufficiency. But faith is reliance on God, not reliance on self. And the more I breathe the air of self-sufficiency, the more faith withers, It is just, it's an inviolable law because the essence of faith is reliance on God. It is realizing my own limitations, but God's utter ability. That's what faith is about. And so the way forward is to trust in God, not my own abilities. And the only way I do that is cultivating that by prayer. The more time I spend with the Father, the more I'm reminded of his utter ability power, his sovereignty, his love, his character, his integrity in keeping his promises. And so what we really need, and this is the question for us to be asked ourselves, is close communion with God. But again, what we do is 
We live in a world, because see, notice Jesus puts it there. He doesn't go back and say, well, you didn't pay careful enough attention when I taught you how to do the, to expel the demon. Did you say this phrase? Is there any of that in this text? See, we live in a world that what we want is quick fix technique. Can you just show me the quick little technique to get through this? And Jesus says the answer is no. The technique is communion with the Father. Not quick, not once, daily, regularly, living in the presence of the Father. And again, for an apprentice of Jesus, the fixation on technique is fatal. What what God wants with you and me is relationship. That is what he's really after. And there's no technique. That's us just being with him. And so um, that that core, you remember when Jesus called the disciples and he did three things. I'm going to send you out to preach. You're going to have authority over demons. But what's the first part of being a disciple? To be with him. That's what discipleship is. That's what apprenticeship is, is us being with Jesus. And so we, like the Father, need to be with him, and regularly we need to be saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I am, I am trying to grow. I am trying to see. But I'm considering the situation with my child or in my marriage or in my life or this person I care for and I'm trying to minister to at work. But, Lord, it seems like Satan is just having a field day there right now, if you and I are going to be able to engage in that, it begins with our own personal communion with God. And, and again, I want us to don't think in terms of technique. When we were in Okinawa, Linda and I, as, I was a young Marine, and we were over, and she was having headaches, and I'm glad she's sitting out in the lobby so she won't holler at me right now. But She was having headaches, and I was in very much a mode of trying to figure out faith and prayer as a matter of technique and formula. So if we do this, if we say this, if we do this right thing. So there were days where I was telling Linda, you know, I know your head's hurting, but let's raise our hands and shout to Jesus, which didn't work, oddly enough. And kind of when we gave up, and I was like, I have no idea how this is, suddenly God started answering her prayers and healing her headaches. And I think the number one lesson was, this is not about technique. This is not about a formula. This is about walking with me, trusting in me. So I'm gonna actually this weekend after hours, and for our our guest after hours is a video I, I make every, comes out every Tuesday. And in it, I'm gonna give some tips for prayer. I'm not an expert, but I, but I have been praying and it has been a key theme in my life for decades now. And I'm gonna give some some little tips uh, about growing in that area and some practical things, but but I wanna say the reason I left that for after hours is the key thing is not about those little tips. It's not about those techniques. It is regularly spending time with God. It's about relationship with God. It's about communion with God, not doing it perfectly. God would rather have you stumbling and bumbling in your prayer, but honestly seeking him, okay? Nobody is writing a prayer book called, I believe, help my unbelief, oddly enough. But Jesus answered that prayer right there because it's what the Father had. And he was reaching out. He was doing real business with God. So I want to encourage us this week, take some time regularly. And by regularly, I mean daily. Each day, to pray for yourself to draw close to God and to pray for those areas, to ask the Lord. Because, see, we, again, this is not about just prayer in the moment. It's a constant life of prayer. So that when these things arise, we are in a place to be able to speak the word of God into the situation, to see the Lord work and do it. And we're gonna have some prayer opportunities coming up as a church I encourage you, be involved in those. Prayer is central to what it means to be a disciple, but if I can just be honest, it's one of the reasons we struggle as a church, because I even struggle in working, trying to encourage other pastors to join in prayer. It's It's a dirty little secret. You can get pastors to do all kinds of things, getting them to pray, not always easy. And this is not me casting as burden. You know what, tomorrow morning when it's my time to pray, I can come up with all kinds of excuses of other things I need to do at the moment. 
This is an opportunity to commune with the Father. So what we're going to do right now, actually, is we are going to come to the communion table because this is another way we do commune with the Father. It's another way that we are able to grow in grace. And you may be sitting here and saying, wow, do I feel like a failure. The, the disciples' prayer life looks good next to mine. I want to remind you, whether you've prayed much or prayed little this week, is that how I get access to this table? You could have prayed all day, every day. You would have no right to this table. You may not have prayed since you can remember. Your access is granted through the work of Jesus Christ because he prays right now for you and for me to give us accessibility to this table. And so as we come, we're going to confess our sins, we're going to confess our failures, and we're going to revel in the fact that he is gracious and faithful to forgive us of our sins. And then we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to work in us, to stir up deeper desires to, to walk with God this week. And I want to remind us as we come to the table, you do not have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means you have to recognize you have no right to this table. It is broken body and shed blood it is the blood that cleanses our sins and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us in the gospel. That is our only hope. If you believe that, we invite you, come to the table, receive from the Lord, receive grace and help for your time of need. If you don't believe that, please grab me right after the meeting. I would love to sit and chat with you more about what it means to be a disciple and apprentice of Jesus and then you should let it pass as it comes by. Brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven, Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to pass out the elements as you do. Grab the two cups together. If you need gluten-free, you can raise your hand and they will bring that to you. And let's just ask the Lord to be working in us by the Holy Spirit and to be deepening our desire to commune with him here and throughout the week. And then we will take together in just a moment. Father, like the disciples, we often find ourselves tempted to trust in our own abilities rather by the, than walking by faith in close communion with you. So we freely confess this sin now and we give you thanks that Jesus lived in perfect trust and communion with you, and that through his broken body, we are reconciled to you. Brothers and sisters, children of God, take and eat. Lord, on the very night of your betrayal, you asked your disciples to pray and watch with you. But they slept when they should have been awake with watchfulness, and so Peter resorted to the sword when he should have trusted. And then they all fled in fear rather than standing in faith. And yet, you willingly died for them and then restored them to yourself. As those who have been so often equally unprepared for our time of testing, we are grateful to know that your blood washes away all of our sin and that you graciously receive and restore us each and every time. Lord, how grateful we are for the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, children of God, take and drink. Let's stand together. And as I pray and cry out to God and the Spirit of God to work in us, I encourage you to join in prayer 
wherever you've been in your walk. Lord, we are grateful for the forgiveness and cleansing we have through Christ. Lord, where would we be without his broken body and shed blood? But Lord, because you have regenerated us, giving us a new heart and putting your spirit within us, we long to be more like Jesus. So we ask that this week you would continually draw us to yourself. Spirit of God, when we are tempted to self-sufficiency or technique, speak to us, reminding us of our need to walk by faith. Spirit of God, when we are tempted to slumber rather than pray, draw us into communion with our Father. Spirit of God, when our hearts are weighed down with worry and care, draw us into prayer so that we might freshly receive the peace of God that is your gift to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we rise each day this week, we ask that you would set our hearts on fire with love for you. And that we would walk with you until we lie down to sleep at night, secure in your love, your mercy, and your presence. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord, who is alive and who reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And God's people say, Amen. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to receive the blessing of your God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Trust in that and go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.